Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, November 18th, 2021. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. You are listening live from Chicago, Illinois. Glad to have you here here from Chicago today and tomorrow. I'm Guy Benson, your host, political editor at townhall.com and Fox News contributor. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Everything you need to know, the resources for the program right there, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. We are stacked again on the show with guests, Joe Concha, Dr. Sapphire, David Drucker, Carol Markowitz, and more all upcoming. Fox News alert as we begin stats as we do every day covid cases confirmed in the u.s 47.3 million the real number is much higher the death toll americans dying with or of covid over the last 19 months 766,206. the dow is down roughly 45 points at this hour trading at 35,884. we'll give you the final number for the day in our next hour joining us now to begin the program is the Republican leader in the United States Senate, Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky. Senator, it's good to have you back. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm really glad to be with you. I want to start with this because I can hardly and scarcely believe that it's real, and yet it is real. We are seeing the House Democrats at least planning to try to get a vote in the next, let's say, 24, 48 hours on the president's so-called Build Back Better bill, uh, this uh, human infrastructure, whatever they're going to call it, reconciliation, partisan, multi-trillion dollar spending spree. And based on what we are seeing from nonpartisan scorekeepers and analysts, this bill would raise taxes on millions of middle class families while giving tax breaks to most millionaires, overwhelmingly in blue states in the United States. So tax hikes for the middle class tax breaks for rich blue state taxpayers and what's emerging today is the single biggest line item the biggest expenditure in this bill if you will are those salt deductions those tax breaks for the rich over the first five years of the bill i know what the democrats say senator all the time about what they would do on taxes this seems to be exactly the opposite of it and i feel like that's gotten pretty scant attention so far. Am I missing something here? Well, uh, it hasn't got any lack of attention on our side. I mean, what, you know, what, what's happening here, guys? The Speaker is marching uh, the House Democratic Conference, at least those that put them in the majority in swing states, right off a cliff, marching them right off a cliff, pursuing this ideological transformation of America into Bernie Sanders' vision of what the country ought to be. 
And, you know, we already had a reaction from the public about how they feel about what these guys have been doing. We saw it in Virginia, even more importantly in New Jersey, where not even competitive races uh, had enormous Republican support. It was a protest vote against inflation and what the Democrats have been doing already all year. And yet what we're seeing from some people is a downplaying of inflation, trying to explain actually it's not really so bad. And what we need to do to combat inflation and make everything feel better is to spend trillions of new dollars and new spending. It's just sort of amazing. Every time there's a new problem that crops up under this administration, whether it's directly their fault, indirectly their fault, or some combination, their giant spending bill magically is the solution for that problem as well. I'm waiting for them to say that the border crisis will be solved by Build Back Better. I mean, they're, they're basically making that argument on all of the you know, economic maladies right now that this is some silver bullet that they've got cooking. The American people don't seem terribly excited about it, but it feels like, at least on the House side, that's what they're going to try to do. Again, I'm not sure if they're going to have the votes. That's still up in the air. What do you think about your side? Let's say they do get this passed or something close to it passed. Then it comes over to the Senate side, and there are at least two of your colleagues on the other side of the aisle who have been not just tapping but in some cases slamming the brakes on this process. Do you feel like whatever the House passes would be dead on arrival in the Senate? Absolutely. But Manchin and Senator both said what the House does is irrelevant, which makes what the Speaker's doing to our own members even more outrageous. She's literally walking them off a cliff to support a bill that will never become law. And even if this reckless tax and spending spree ultimately in some form or another uh, clears uh, the Senate, even liberal economists who actually prefer from a policy point of view what the Democrats are trying to accomplish here are admitting, Guy, that it will exacerbate the inflation problem both this year and next year. And inflation is the number one issue. Ninety percent of Americans are concerned or deeply concerned about inflation. That's the biggest issue. This, this measure is totally unresponsive to what the American people are concerned about as they pull up to fill up their cars, as they go to the grocery store to try to prepare for Thanksgiving. The worst inflation in 30 years is on their minds, not more reckless tax and spending. So some conservatives might say, okay, fair enough, we agree with that, Senator McConnell. However, a bunch of Republicans, several dozen, you were one of them in the Senate, and there was more than a dozen in the House, voted for the infrastructure bill which the president signed into law this week and was touting it. I know that you've said it's, you think, a, a good piece of legislation, now a good law for your state, for the country. It, it does spend uh, quite a lot of money, and there are conservatives who are angry about that. The spending, whether this was necessary spending, handing a win to Biden, getting the votes, at least on the House side, that Pelosi needed to get the thing across the finish line. Uh, the former president... Donald Trump, of course, uh, put out a few statements with some interesting new nicknames for you. I've always preferred cocaine Mitch myself. But there's some criticism. You've heard it. What is your response to Republicans and conservatives, people in your own coalition who say this was a mistake? Uh, Quite the opposite is the case. What it did was separate something that's popular. Seventy-five percent of Americans want to see the infrastructure addressed. 
from something that's unpopular, which was what they were left with after that. Secondly, my vote was contingent upon there not being any revisitation of the 2017 tax bill and the infrastructure bill, and there wasn't. Not a single uh, tax reduction item in the comprehensive tax bill of 2017 was altered in the infrastructure bill. And it was largely paid for. You could argue it wasn't fully paid for, uh, but it was overwhelmingly popular. It didn't raise taxes, and it separated out from the rest of the bill the popular part, leaving them only to deal with what I would call the spinach, the sugar having already cleared. Since you mentioned the 2017 tax reform bill that was signed into law by President Trump, passed by a Republican Congress, I just want to briefly stick there for a moment because I know it feels like we're sort of rehashing the past, but the Democrats at that time threw everything they had to try to stop that legislation from passing. The media largely played along. This is so irresponsible. It's Armageddon. It's the end of the world. People are going to die. We're going to starve the government and a bunch of poor people are going to be out in the streets. And we saw, of course, massive growth in 2018 and 2019 before the pandemic sort of intervened and, and slowed everything down to a halt. We also have seen record government revenues because of that growth, and even a record haul from corporate tax rates this past year. I just think it's important to remember that so many of the arguments the Democrats were making passionately, angrily, confidently, just a few years ago about the disaster of something that turned out to be actually quite helpful to the economy, it's important to remember how wrong they were, because they're making a lot of new claims now about their various adventures. And I feel like they're their credibility should be measured based on their previous pronouncements about a really important piece of legislation. And I wonder how you feel about Republicans being able to maybe make that point without refighting that same old fight again. Well, I think it's a point worth making. We got a report card on the success of the 2017 tax bill in February of 2020, one month before the pandemic hit. We had the best economy we've had in 20 years. And as you just pointed out, we cut corporate tax rates from 35 to 21, and revenue from corporate taxes went through the roof. It went up, not down. So everything they said about the 27 tax bill was demonstrably and provably false. And they wanted to revisit that in the infrastructure bill. I said, we're not doing that. That was the key to getting 19 Republicans to support something that... 75 percent of the american people think was in their best interest senator mcconnell i know you're up on a hard stop here in just a moment i do want to ask you this quickly we've been asking some of our guests this week about it is there with thanksgiving exactly one week away is there a thanksgiving tradition in your household in your family that is either unusual or particularly meaningful to you Well, it's probably not different from any other family, but as we gather around the table, we obviously count our blessings. And not only the health of our family is front and center, but the blessing of being in the greatest country ever. And it's, a, you know, the efforts of many particularly woke people on the hard left to run down this country make me angry. 
Um, I'm sure if they're this unhappy about America, there'd be other countries that would be happy to take them. Uh, but I'm among those who find myself among the luckiest people in the world to be in the United States of America. That is Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. He would like to be the majority leader again. That might happen based on some of the polling that we've seen just in the last few weeks. Sir, we will talk about the political environment in a future conversation, but for now, we will leave it there. Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, on The Guy Benson Show. Senator, we appreciate it, as always. Thanks, Bob. We will take a break. We will be right back. There's a new poll. I just referenced it. It is, once again, absolutely brutal for Joe Biden and the Democrats. Details next on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, I'm Guy Benson. And I referenced it right before the break there with Senator McConnell because he is just barely the minority leader in the U.S. Senate. 50-50 split. And some of the polling, public opinion stuff that we've seen just in the last, let's say, month has been gruesome, just dreadful for the Democratic Party, for President Biden for Democratic leaders. And if it were just polls, you might say, well, we don't believe the polls. Although a lot of the polling mistakes and misses in recent years have been in the direction of the Republicans, right? At least the outcomes, right? The I should say Republicans outperformed the polls is the point I'm making there. So if the polls are terrible for Democrats, you might say, well, the reality must be worse for the Democrats. But we also have results. That's a point McConnell just made. We have results from New Jersey. We have results, of course, from Virginia. We have a number of other races around the country. Special elections. Texas comes to mind. Party switches. School board elections. Judicial elections, Pennsylvania, right? The winds are blowing in one direction. And the polls are picking that up. Now, whenever we talk about the polling, we acknowledge what well, it's pre-Thanksgiving here, 2021. And the voting for the midterms won't happen until post-Halloween 2022. So we've got quite a ways to go. And who knows what kind of fluctuations may occur ups and downs and twists and turns and all of that between now and then. However, as things stand, it just keeps getting uglier in some ways for President Biden. Remember the theory that, oh, it'll start to rebound. We'll see a little bit of a rebound or, a, you know, a, a, an improvement in fortunes for Biden and the Democrats after the infrastructure bill passes. Well, and after it's signed, and they make a big hullabaloo out of that, and people say, oh, good, they're getting something done. We like this. This is popular. There's a jobs report that was pretty good a couple weeks ago. Well, all of that has come and gone, and now there's a new poll from Quinnipiac, which has been blue-tinted heavily in recent years. And they have Biden at his worst level yet. 
his approval rating is 36%. Disapproval, 53%. He's underwater by 17 points with a majority disapproving. And when you look at strong approve, strong disapprove, I mean, it is a blowout. The intensity is heavily slanted in the wrong direction if you're Joe Biden. Inside this poll, a few other notes from it. Republicans overwhelmingly disapprove, unsurprisingly. Democrats overwhelmingly approve, unsurprisingly. What about those all-important independents who went for the Republicans pretty heavily a few weeks ago, Virginia, New Jersey, and elsewhere, who went against Trump, right? They voted for Trump in 2016 by a bit, independents did. Then they turned against him for 2020. In these purple states and battleground districts, independents often make the difference, right? There's an intensity situation where you've got the base turnout game, and both parties try to turn out their people, and then there are the folks that seesaw the actual results back and forth. That's why they're called swing elections. It sort of it does swing back and forth like a pendulum. Well, the independents are swinging, and they're swinging hard right now. In this new poll, Quinnipiac, Joe Biden's approval rating as president is 29% among independents. 56% disapprove. I mean, brutal. That's uh, 27 points underwater among independents. Now, how does that translate? Looking ahead to 2022, they asked the generic ballot question that we've been following. And as we usually point out, Republicans don't traditionally do well on that metric. They're doing very well at the moment. And there was the Suffolk poll, USA Today, Republicans up eight on the generic ballot. Oh, that's an outlier. That seems a little too crazy. Let's wait and see. Is that a trend or is that an outlier? Must be an outlier. Well, then came the Washington Post poll, ABC News. Republicans up 10 on the generic ballot. Here's another poll that has the Republicans up eight on the generic ballot. Just suffice it to say, if it is anywhere in the Republicans' lead realm, let alone by eight or ten points, it will be an extremely painful election for the Democrats. Plus eight on the generic ballot right now is a really good place for Republicans to be, especially in a Quinnipiac poll. They asked about the Senate. Republicans up six on Senate control, and that's probably an even bigger advantage in the key battleground states where there will be Senate elections, where Republicans have like a 20-point lead, according to the Washington Post. So our last guest, Mitch McConnell, is the minority leader for now. If these trends continue... There's a very good chance he'll be majority leader within a year. It's the Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. From Chile, Chicago, it's the Guy Benson Show. You know, I lived in this city for seven years. 
And you would think I would have learned my lesson by now that even in mid-November, I would need a very heavy winter coat, not merely some jackets and pullovers. That's what I have. Then I roll in and it's like 32 degrees when we land. So I'll be borrowing a coat, I think. It's cold. Joining us now is Joe Concha, Fox News contributor, columnist for The Hill, and his beat is the media, and there's some very interesting stories and developments on this front. Uh, Joe, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks, guy. You know, I decided to stay in South Florida for a couple of weeks. I couldn't go back, so I'm just uh, at this little pool, a little hotel that you may be familiar with, and it's it's lovely. Thank you. Well, enjoy that. I actually flew in from Florida today, and there's a dramatic uh, drop in temperature, among other things. So let's talk about what happened in the Rittenhouse trial today, where all of a sudden there was a bit of a stir. We don't have a verdict or anything like that yet. What we do have is the judge making an announcement about a very strange situation, apparently an encounter between local police and some sort of journalist who appeared to be tracking the jurors and following the bus that the jury was on. And we have the audio from the courtroom. Here is the judge explaining what happened. Let's listen first to cut 35. Last evening, um, a person who identified himself as James Jim Morrison and who claimed that he was a producer with NBC News, employed uh, for N- MSNBC, um, and under the supervision of a person. What's going on? Oh, okay. Uh, under the supervision of someone named Irene Bayon in New York uh, for MSNBC. Uh, the police, when they stopped him, because he was following at a distance of about a, a block and uh, went through a red light, pulled him over and inquired of him what was going on, and he gave that information and stated that he had been instructed by Ms. Bayon in New York to follow the jury bus. To follow the jury bus. This is someone working, it sounds like, in the employ of MSNBC, directed by someone at MSNBC in New York to follow the jury, follow the juror bus, or the bus filled with jurors. Uh, The judge continued cut 36. Uh, The matter is uh, under further investigation at this point. and the media has asked questions about it. That's the latest I have. Um, and he was ticketed for uh, uh, violating a traffic control signal. Uh, he's not here today from what I'm told. And um, I have instructed that no one from MSNBC News will be permitted in this building for the duration of this trial. Uh, this is a very serious matter and I'm don't know what the ultimate truth of it is, but absolutely it, it, it would go without much thinking that someone who is following a, the jury bus, uh, that is a very, it's extremely serious matter and uh, will be referred to the uh, proper authorities for further action. Okay, Joe Conscious. So from what we've gleaned so far, and there are some updates here as well, There was this MSNBC employee or someone related to MSNBC allegedly following the jury bus. 
He told when the police stopped him, he told the police that he was instructed by his higher-ups at MSNBC to do precisely that. The judge has now barred MSNBC from the courthouse for the duration of the trial, and NBC is basically admitting on some level that there is some truth to this, although there are denials, quasi-denials at least, that they've put out. Here's a statement from NBC, quote, Last night a freelancer received a traffic citation. While the traffic violation took place near the jury van, the freelancer never contacted or intended to contact the jurors during deliberations and never photographed or intended to photograph them. Uh, The statement goes on. So that seems like a very lawyerly denial because they're saying, well, he wasn't going to try to contact them during deliberations. That does not mean that he wasn't trying to gather information about who these people were to then contact them after the trial to try to secure an interview or something like that. And there are apparently other reporters saying things like this do happen. What can you tell us about what we have learned about this circumstance and what's happened, the judge's reaction to it, and sort of the media's reaction to what went down here? Because clearly eyebrows have been raised. Yeah, Guy. Well, the judge has banned not just MSNBC, but NBC News from the courtroom, as you said, calls this a very serious matter. And look, here's what we're supposed to believe. A producer from a network that has clearly and repeatedly declared Kyle Rittenhouse guilty well before this trial began and during it. A network that is called Rittenhouse a racist, that is called the judge a racist. That producer from that network just happened to be driving near the jury bus, runs a red light, mind you, gets pulled over, and he wasn't to stay there. Close, to, to stay close to the jury bus, by the way, right, I mean, that would make sense. To, thank you. And, and, and he wasn't there to follow the bus, to ID the jury, to take photographs, perhaps, of the jury, or perhaps their car's license plate so they can get interviews afterwards. And that's what a court TV reporter is arguing, that, oh, this happens all the time. So after a verdict comes down, then you can find the jury and you can get an interview with them. Maybe the jury doesn't want to be found, particularly in a case like this where it's so highly charged. Right, uh, so much misinformation, the- including a lot of misinformation, as you note, coming yeah. from MSNBC. Big time. And meanwhile, okay, why run the red light, right? That's one question. What is the sense of urgency if you're not following the jury bus? You don't want it to get away. But but meanwhile, also, the person who the producer here claimed ordered the code red, so to speak. The, the producer said, go follow that bus back in New York, where, it was where she was located. Her name is Irene Bayon. She has since nuked her social media accounts. Now, when you do that, that means you're hiding. You don't want to take any questions. Maybe you got caught. So, look, this is beyond dangerous. We don't have to state the obvious. The president well, by the way, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be interesting that if this msnbc uh, producer or booker or executive whoever this person is if they want to be left alone in private i wonder what she thinks about the desire of jurors to be left alone in private after you know being involved in a case like this right the privacy seems uh, high up on her list for herself maybe not so much for these jurors because i guess that's the story here let's just let's just stop for a second And I don't want to say anything where I'm out over my skis or making totally declarative statements before we have all the facts. But just common sense, Joe, it makes no sense that this person working for a news organization who is saying that he was told to follow the jury bus by MSNBC, it makes no sense that this is a coincidence. He was, of course, following the jury bus 
to try to figure out who these people are in order to get interviews with them afterwards because there's so much attention on the trial. The idea that the way that this is phrased by NBC News, a freelancer received a traffic citation. First of all, the freelancer thing is like trying to distance themselves from this person. But if the freelancer is working under the direction of higher up people at the network, the fact that this is kind of like a gopher doesn't matter. This is what the what the network apparently has ordered. That's number one. Oh, the, the traffic violation took place near the jury van, but there was no contact and there was no intent to photograph or contact these people during deliberations. I think that they kind of give away the game here in this statement where they try to distance themselves from this dude and then on this really narrow technicality try to pretend that he wasn't doing exactly what he was doing by using the words during deliberations right i i think that it's pretty clear to me at least that what this guy told the police he was doing was exactly what he was doing because he was told to do it and any deflection here and sort of it's not even a denial right it's it's a lot of words put in such an order probably by the lawyers over there to make it seem to average people at least somewhat confusing and give the impression that there might have been some strange coincidence here i would be shocked if there was a, a any sort of a coincidence i think this is is exactly what it looks like it is it is what it is that the saying that it we is all what hate, it right is. Uh, yep. and, and that was great because i hadn't picked up on that during deliberations oh this is after i guess they left the courtroom so maybe I, I, you're right about that 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 was a very carefully worded statement and i think they think now it's going to go away I, I i can't wait to watch uh, nicole wallace and joy reed tonight the, the two biggest perpetrators of all the lies that have been told about kyle rittenhouse the people that keep injecting race into and i'm sure you've talked about this into a case where one white guy shot three other white guys and race is now the central issue for many in our media that that is just remarkable to me well nbc news speaking of nbc news they've got an opinion piece up right now which is arguing that this is a racial case and for a lot of black people they're about to be re-traumatized because you've got first they said it's like a two-step thing they say the murder of a black person and then the trial but setting aside that thesis if it fit the facts it doesn't fit the facts here. It's all white people. It's, it is a very, very weird compulsion, Joe, for me, that a lot of people have this obsession. They, they seem almost to weirdly fetishize racial disharmony and, and racial strife in the context of, of killings or a trial like this. And they are so addicted to that that they're willing to insert that narrative into a story where it does not have any bearing on the actual people involved, defendant and deceased. It's like the movie Dumb and Dumber, except that was fiction, and this is real life, and it has real consequences when you stoke these the, 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 these racial tensions. So again, here it's like you're taking something is that's completely irrelevant to the case and injecting it in. We saw it in Virginia, guy, right? Where you have Glenn Youngkin, he wins this race on education, and he wins it on the economy. Winsome Sears becomes the first 
female, black, lieutenant governor in the state, any female actually of, of color to win stateside. Uh, then you have an attorney general uh, who's Latino uh, that wins as well. And all we hear about is how white supremacists are the yeah. ones that put well, them into <laughs> office. And when they're confronted on particularly Winsome Sears, they're like, well, she's really a ventriloquist for white supremacy. Even though she's black, she's not really black. So you could take almost any situation where there's a lot of media attention and the MSNBCs and CNNs of the world will inject race into it because they think that it's going to resonate with their audiences, but I look at the numbers and MSNBC, I'm sorry, CNN's down 80%, CNN's down 65, 70% since the beginning of the year. It's the boy who cried wolf and nobody's listening anymore. That whistle is, is gone. By the way, Joe, I have to point out when you were just going into that piece about Virginia, you had a little bit of a a slip, almost Freudian, where you referred to, you corrected yourself, but you started to call her Winsome Smears, which actually is sort of appropriate, <laughs> given what was done to her by a yeah. lot of these people, including on the air at MSNBC. And just to repeat, NBC has this very, um, I would say, squirrely, slippery statement that they've put out about this incident involving the jury bus, the jury van. Their network has been thrown out of the courthouse altogether for the remainder of the trial. The jury is still in deliberations that uh, trial. Um, a lot of people very eager to see what ends up happening there and uh, people vigilant for any sign that perhaps there's some sort of conclusion that the jury has reached. In the meantime, Joe, I'm not even sure if I want to play you this soundbite just because I'm not sure how much oxygen I want to give this guy. But the, the media guy over at CNN who seemingly his entire job is just to watch Fox News and be mad about it all the time. He makes the same points basically every day, high dudgeon, very self-righteous, deeply self-unaware almost all the time. Uh, he had another one of these diatribes, I guess it was last night, saying Fox News divides the country and there's no more truth anymore, and, you know, all this stuff. Um, you know, we might as well. Uh, here's cut 37. Well, I think it's splitting the culture into two that there is no single shared culture, no single shared reality. And I think all of us feel that in our personal lives, you know, whether we feel it at Thanksgiving next week, or we just feel it, you know, kind of more commonly or more casually when talking about school meetings, when talking about what students are learning, when talking about where people are getting information. It is a, a splintering of one culture into two where you have these Republicans uh, who are making the argument that they are under attack from the left. And mm -hmm. that is the narrative on Fox, which I, I think is really, it's not pro-Trump anymore, it's anti-Biden. The best way to view these right-wing outlets is they're anti-Biden in every way, shape, and form. They're not airing Biden's events live. They ignore his events. They only focus on the news that makes the party look good. They do not talk about the Gosar video. You know, Fox barely mentioned the Gosar video today. Uh Fox did mention the Gosar video. They followed the Gosar vote on the censure. We talked about it here on this show. Biden events, we dip in and out of them all the time on this show. Uh, they stream them live on foxnews.com. You know, it's, it, so the way that he's characterizing what Fox does and does not cover is not correct. Uh, the idea that Fox is just some propaganda arm for the Republican Party um, especially coming from this guy at CNN and what they do on a day in and day out basis. And it's like Fox is responsible for the splintering of this culture. Like they bear no responsibility for any of this stuff. They're, you know, just pure as the wind driven snow. It's, it's pretty hard to, to stomach. And yet this is what most of the media believes about Fox and more importantly believes or deludes themselves into believing about themselves. 
your reaction, Joe. Sure. Uh, look, I think we're in the same boat, guy, and this is a good boat to be in. Whenever I'm on the air, and since I'm kind of a, a media guy along with, with Howie Kurtz at, at, at Fox when we have to talk about media stuff, um, I don't say his name. I don't want to say his name. It's the Bill Parcells rule. Bill Parcells, the old coach of uh, the Giants and the Cowboys, and he would never say Terrell Owens' name because Owens, you know, was was a problem, and he felt like that would be a good way to disrespect him and motivate him. So he said, "Oh, you know, the receiver was late for another meeting today. The receiver went over the middle and, and refused to extend to catch a ball, and it drove Terrell Owens crazy." I refuse to say Stelter's name on the air. I'm saying it now just to just to make a point uh, because I don't want to give him any oxygen either because he is a liar. He's a liar. He said that Fox doesn't carry Biden's speeches live? Of course they do. He, this is a guy, three days after Trump got into office, and this really caught my attention, he said that there were hundreds of swastikas that were being found around the country, and, and, and not even CNN was reporting that. And he based it on like a Media Matters like kind of report, and never apologized for it. This is a guy who put a, a guest on his air not too long ago, who said that Trump was responsible for more deaths than Mao, Hitler, and who was the other one? Stalin combined. And then Stelter doesn't step into do anything and then he gets criticized for it so well, I mean, which said, oh, is no, wild audio which is completely i mean just you know i do remember that one it's you know tens of millions of people I mean, craziness I, I last thing i think it's also adorable the underlying assumption that airing biden's speeches live would help him i mean that's the that's the underlying assumption there it's like oh if we only carried it people would love it people have seen more than enough of this president so far and that's why his approval ratings are where they are we talked about that earlier in the hour joe concha our colleague at fox news here on the guy benson show much to get you as always joe we appreciate it guy good to see you man enjoy chicago go to a place called gibson's you'll love the steak <laughs> we'll be right back the guy benson show more next and it's an honor for me as governor to be able to welcome the Fox Nation Patriot Awards to the freest state in these United States. It's the Guy Benson Show. That was Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida last night. Huge welcome for him at the Patriot Awards. We'll talk more about our experience there later in the show. DeSantis today signing legislation banning mandates in a town called Brandon, Florida. Not a coincidence, I suspect. Another hour coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Our middle hour underway here on the Guy Benson Show. We air live 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. So this is the 4 p.m. Eastern Hour, although it's the 3 p.m. Hour where I am right now in Chicago, Illinois. Glad to have you here every single weekday. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. GuyBensonShow.com. Everything you need right there, including the free podcast on demand every day. Fox News alert at the top of this middle hour. The trading day is over in New York. And let's check the markets on Wall Street. The Dow closed down 60 points, finishing at 35,870. Joining me now is Dr. Nicole Sapphire. She's a board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor, best-selling author of Panic Attack, which you can pick up today. And, Doctor, good to have you back here. Hey, Guy. Thanks for having me on. 
So here's a little background, folks. Um, I, in fact, just last night, having dinner with some people, and I was talking about, of course, you know, the pandemic comes up, talking about COVID. Uh, many of you know who listen that I've been a big advocate for the vaccines, uh, I think for good reason. And I'm very glad that I got vaccinated and my loved ones got vaccinated. I also had a very mild breakthrough case in August. So a few months after I got my second Moderna shot, I had a breakthrough case and I had to sort of hang out in a hotel, quarantine for a number of days, like four or five days. It was quick. It was overall quite painless. But I was doing that for the safety of others having tested positive. And during that ordeal, we did not miss a show. Like, did not miss a beat here. I did not feel sick enough to miss a show. And we just kept on trucking. And we had on the air with us Dr. Sapphire several times during that process just to talk about breakthrough cases and what they mean and what they don't mean and what the implications are for the vaccines. And behind the scenes, she was almost serving as my as my personal physician, like texting me, calling me, uh, accepting my calls at all hours incredibly nice and i have thanked her publicly for that already this is months ago why do i bring all of that up again why dredge that back up well because we wanted to book dr sapphire on the show we do it all the time we had a few different things covid related you know pfizer a few other things to talk mask mandates to get to and uh, i got a text from producer christine earlier she said yeah we got sapphire she's good to go 405 eastern i said great fantastic i'm in an uber i get another text message it is from Doc, it's from Dr. Sapphire. Say, hey, I just got booked on your show. FYI, I'm home with a breakthrough case of COVID. So, Dr. Sapphire, I wish I could somehow pay back your various kindnesses and expertise that you afforded me during my breakthrough case. Uh, I really can't do much of anything. In fact, I'm like putting you on the air here on the radio. I'm sure you're, you'd rather just do other things, but I'm glad that you're joining us anyway. How are you feeling? What are you up to? Well, that's right, guys. So I officially have a breakthrough infection. I'm fully vaccinated. And my littlest, youngest of three boys, um, was had a very mild cough uh, last week, and I decided to rapid him, and he was positive. And lo and behold, a couple days later, I started getting some flu-like symptoms. No one else in our household, husband, other kids, um, have tested positive. But um, as many people who watch Fox know, um, I have an autoimmune disease. I take immunosuppressant injections. So it's not surprising that I was the one who had the breakthrough infection. And, you know, it, it's mild, mild flu-like. I am getting antibodies, uh, the Regeneron antibodies, as, you know, that has been shown to lessen your viral load, decrease the duration of your symptoms, and also decrease the risk of hospitalization and severe disease. So I'm doing everything I can to further decrease my risk of severity, being, of course, fully vaccinated. That's also linked to being able to reduce the risk of severe illness. And you've got a combination of factors there. I just want to unpack a number of different things that you just said. Question, and I think there's people who are probably curious about this, because you have that pre-existing condition and you take those immunosuppressant shots that you just mentioned, and because you work in the medical field, May I ask, have you gotten a booster shot or are, when you say fully vaccinated, is that two or is that three? Well, interesting, Guy. And one thing that I haven't mentioned much on air is well, 
of course, I am fully vaccinated, but I am only fully vaccinated as of this summer. So I am not six months after my second dose. Got it. And that's because, um, for some people who don't know, I fell down um, 18 stairs last December and really badly injured myself. And I've had multiple surgeries to repair um, that my, a shoulder, my shoulder that was very badly injured. And because general anesthesia um, really flares my autoimmune disease, we held off on the vaccine because we, there's also been reports that the vaccine can flare autoimmune diseases. So. I was already in a really high state of inflammation with my injuries mm. and the surgeries that we held off. And that was a precarious time for me because being on immunosuppressants, I didn't want to get COVID because my autoimmune disease affects my heart and so does COVID-19. So I played it very safe and still went to work every day in the hospital. I had many close contact exposures, but you know I was always masked appropriately with proper PPE and I never got it. Um, and then as soon as I was recovered enough that I didn't need to undergo any more surgeries, the time was right and I got the vaccine. But no, I haven't gotten a booster yet because my, vac- my second dose was only three months ago. I got it. So that's that's the timing there. That's an interesting detail that I did not know. And that I think, not to get too distracted, I think what you just explained goes to the reason why so many of us have said, talk to your doctor about this. Even those of us who are like you and I, hugely in favor of people getting vaccinated against COVID-19, the vaccines work, they're safe, they're effective, they're amazingly effective against uh, severe illness, hospitalization, death. But there are circumstances that other people don't know, may never know, which you were dealing with, you know, with the anesthesia and then going through uh, you know, that process of repairing your shoulder that influenced and played a part in the decision that you were making, a medical decision that makes perfect sense. But if people didn't have that context, they might say, oh, why is she delaying, you know, getting this getting this vaccine? Well, for very good medical reasons which is why I think it's always important to think carefully and talk to a doctor to make sure that the decision you're making in the sequence that you're making it makes sense for you. And I think for the overwhelming majority of people, it's go get the vaccine as soon as possible. That's what I did. That was a a little color that you added to your situation that I think underscores, you know, the the top down one size fits all, you know, judgmental thing where you don't necessarily know someone's circumstance, just kind of a cautionary tale. Now let's talk about, this breakthrough infection, you, it sounds thankfully that it's, it's pretty mild, flu-like symptoms. Uh, any taste or smell stuff, or is that still normal? Nope, that's still normal. Um, you know, the, earlier in the week, I was feeling, um, you know, low-grade fever, you know, achy, definitely had a little bit of a cough, congestion, um, and it hasn't gotten any worse than that, thankfully, um, but just because of my immunosuppressant medications, um, mm-hmm. you know, we get a little bit more worried about that cytokine storm, which happens about seven days into the infection, um, and that's what tends to put people in the hospital. So because I'm only three months out from my vaccination and because I already have a breakthrough infection, you know, we're being pretty cautious with me, and that's why I decided to receive the antibodies um, it's not that I went out because I'm feeling so terrible. It's just that we're being proactive. Right. The last Preemptive in some ways. Exactly. And that's what people need to do. And what you were talking about before is it's not a one size fits all. And it's not for anybody. 
SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, it affects everyone differently. And that's why I, I am opposed to the vaccine mandates. I think that there may be legitimate reasons why some people hold off on the vaccine or who haven't gotten it, and maybe they don't ever get it. I think that it should be a personal decision between physicians and their patients. Um, and if you do have a breakthrough infection, you know, we are seeing more and more breakthrough infections. Efficacy yeah, both of, of the us vaccine now. does does wane. However, we we don't have real-time data on how well it is still preventing hospitalizations and death. I can tell you from a firsthand experience myself and then talking to all my colleagues, we are still seeing very few people vaccinated being um, hospitalized with COVID-19. But unfortunately, the CDC hasn't updated that data since the end of August. So we mm-hmm. don't really know what the Delta wave has done to that efficacy. Although it's it's good to hear what you just said, the experience of a lot of doctors that you're speaking to that would indicate that the efficacy is still high. Before we move on from the, the antibody treatments that you're taking, I know that this was heavily promoted, for example, in Florida by Governor DeSantis. And some people for a while tried to write that off as some sort of like, you know, kooky, uh, you know, witch doctor stuff. And then it turned out, actually, it's it's very effective and the Biden White House was endorsing it. And then Florida was using so much of it and it was so effective that then they said, well, maybe we need to actually ration this a little bit from Florida because other states might need it. Um, Regeneron was the particular treatment that they were touting down in Florida. Uh, is that is that what you're getting? What does that look like? What does receiving antibodies, what does that entail? So it's an infusion. You get set up by an IV. There is a subcutaneous version of it, um, but that's more for prophylaxis. Um, and what it is, it's a combination of two antibodies um, that essentially boost your immune system. So if I'm making antibodies myself right now, I'm just infusing myself, giving me more. Think of a blood transfusion. You have blood, but you give a blood transfusion to give them more blood. So I'm giving myself antibodies right now to really help me fight off this virus. It's not an antiviral. It doesn't do anything to the virus. It just helps me fight off the virus myself. And I can tell you, uh, my colleague, my best friend, to be honest, is she is a physician out in West Texas, small town West Texas. They were hit very hard recently with COVID-19. She said that they were having drive-up clinics for antibody infusions. People weren't even getting out of their car. They would just go outside, hook them up to an IV, and then sit with them out there. We are having drive-up clinics in Florida, too. Here in New Jersey, it's very different. Governor Murphy has decided that he wants to keep a hold on all of his antibody treatments, and you either have to go to an emergency department or someplace similar to that. There are very few services that will come to your home and do it, Um, but it's really frustrating that you can't just go to your primary care doctor or some other physician that you feel comfortable with and get the infusion. So it's a little bit more restricted where, where you are in Jersey. You did send me a selfie of this process underway, uh, looking stunning as ever, I have to point out, uh, but also, also getting those antibodies. Um, I do want to ask you two more questions uh, about this situation, because you know and I know there are some people listening right now, maybe vaccinated, many probably unvaccinated in, cert- in certain uh, circumstances, saying, aha, here are these two people telling me to get vaccinated for the last year, and they've both had breakthrough cases. And I said at the time, well, my breakthrough case was like a tiny sniffle. And that's basically it. It was extremely mild. I credited the vaccine for making it a very mild situation. And but people say, well, you're young. You could have had a very mild one anyway. Maybe, maybe not. 
But statistically speaking, I know that the severity of breakthrough cases is dramatically lower than it could be otherwise, which is why I was very happy with my vaccination decision uh, when I had my breakthrough case and thankful that I had uh, those antibodies. What is your response to people who might say, well, you know, here's the doctor who's been preaching vaccine, then she gets this breakthrough case anyway. You are immunosuppressed. How thankful are you right now that you have COVID, that you have both of those shots in your system? Well, I can tell you that there has been a severe uncoupling from severity of illness following vaccination status. I mean, the data shows you that, and then just real-world experience from what I see and what every single one of my colleagues sees. I mean, I can tell you that there has been a drastic decrease of hospitalizations and deaths following vaccination. So for me specifically, someone who is somewhat immunosuppressed, I believe that I, if I had gotten COVID-19, I truly believe... I. I that I would have a severe course. That doesn't mean I would have been hospitalized or I would have died from it, but I think I would have struggled. And I do have some faith that being fully vaccinated has helped me only have mild flu-like symptoms. Now, you know, I can't say for certain, I don't know, but I believe based on the data and based on everything I have heard and seen that being fully vaccinated likely has decreased the severity of my symptoms. Now, I I will say there's a caveat to that, caveat to that, though. I would like to see more updated data on the Delta variant when it comes to being fully vaccinated, as we are seeing more breakthrough cases. But again, I think that there's just a lower ability to prevent infection. I still believe that these vaccines are very likely to give you an immune response and keep people out of the hospital. Last question briefly. You mentioned that your daughter got COVID and you think you got it from your daughter. How old is she? How is she feeling? Son, I have three boys and oh, son, my okay. baby. Uh, he has coughed about three times in the last week. <laughs> and other than that, he's bouncing off the walls. So, so he's, he's fine. fine. <laughs> yeah. So that's uh, one other piece of anecdotal evidence that aligns with the data about uh, kids overwhelmingly being fine, even if they get COVID. And uh, it sounds like you've got well, you've got some kids now who have been uh, subjected to or uh, exposed to COVID. So I guess maybe there's some remote learning happening, which has got to be a lot of fun for a parent when you're fighting through COVID yourself to be dealing with all those moving parts. So we're thinking of you. We're praying for you. Uh, Dr. Nicole Sapphire, feel 100 percent better as soon as possible. We look forward to having you back very soon as well. Thanks for having me on, Guy. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, our friend and colleague here at the Guy Benson Show. We will take a break and step aside. Don't go anywhere. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Quick thought on the border crisis, because I touched on it yesterday. We just got totally swamped at the Patriot Awards. We had so many guests. I want to make this point. We talked about the horrible drug overdose deaths highest ever by a lot in the last year and people are admitting that definitely has to do with covid and lockdowns that's part of it also fentanyl more than half of those deaths involve fentanyl fentanyl a lot of it's coming across the southern border and this is part of the reason the border crisis is not just about alleged asylum seekers it's about other things too dangerous drugs dangerous people people getting trafficked there are other Really important things that arise, problems, threats that arise from a border that is not properly enforced or secured, especially when resources have been diverted 
to this overwhelming crush of people. Secretary Mayorkas in the Biden administration was asked to grade himself, his performance on all this stuff, by Lindsey Graham the other day, cut 33. Do you believe uh, that the Biden immigration policies are successful? Uh, Senator, I, uh, I think rebuilding a broken immigration system and rebuilding a dismantled one takes time, and we're on the road to success. So you think we're on the right track as a nation? I do. Okay. How would you grade yourself? Uh, Senator, um, I'm a tough grader on myself, and I give myself um, an A for effort, investment, okay. in mission, and support of our workforce. He gets an A. He gives himself an A. 1.6 million border encounters in the first year of Biden. More than 400,000 gotaways, the highest October on record last month. The DHS secretary looks at all of that and says, you know what? We're on the right track. And I give myself an A. Unbelievable. The Guy Benson Show resumes after this break. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We continue here on The Guy Benson Show from Chicago. Today and tomorrow. Glad to have you along. GuyBensonShow.com. That's the website. Joining us now, David Drucker, senior correspondent for the Washington Examiner and author of the brand new book, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. David, welcome back. Hey, really good to be here, Guy. Thanks for having me back. Let's start with your book. And there's actually a news hook today. I'm sure you saw the poll asking Republicans across the country, would you like to see President Trump run again for president in 24? And it was a split. 60% said yes, 40% said no. Independents split heavily in the no direction. But, you know, 60% is diminished. The grip that he has is loosening, perhaps. But that's still a really big number, and he would be a very heavy favorite right now if he were to announce. What significance does that have, numbers like that, in your mind, based on... The book that you've written, the research and interviews that you've done for the book in Trump's shadow, when it comes to not just the decision making process for Trump, but everyone else who might want to run for president, because there's I can think of a few dozen people on the Republican side who would seriously consider running for president. And many of them are absolutely moving in that direction, taking all the steps that they feel like they need to do. But looming over all of it is a decision by the former president that could influence, I would say, many, if not most of those people's decision whether to throw their hat in the ring at all. So that's a lot to unpack. So feel free to attempt to do so. (laughs) Yeah, good luck to me. Listen, um, one of the things that I learned in reporting in Trump's shadow guy was that even though President Trump may dominate the field, as the numbers suggest, suggest that he would, and even if ultimately the field of candidates is rather small, because he runs, which he may, he has not frozen the field in this regard. And I think that's what's so important for people to understand. Um, Over the past four or five years, and it was one of the impetus, it was one of the motivations behind uh, in Trump's shadow, a number of Republicans, several really, have been planning for the 2024 campaign since long before President Trump had won or lost re-election. That in itself is rather unusual. Usually when your party is in the White House, you wait for the incumbent to win or lose And then the flag is up and everybody goes forward with the next campaign. So this is something they have been actively planning for since really 2016, 2017, 2018. 
And nothing that President Trump has said since last November when he lost reelection has changed their planning or their actions. And so you have a number of Republicans building up donor bases, collecting grassroots supporters, uh, developing relationships with operatives in key states and around the country, planning a run. Now, clearly, if the president runs, the former president, some will choose not to, concluding that it's just too big of a lift. But one of the interesting things I detected in reporting out in Trump's shadow was that there are some Republicans, and it might surprise people, that aren't planning to back down just because Trump runs. Now, whether they could beat him is another question. But I do not expect him, based on my reporting in the book, to simply clear the field of any competition. And then I think the question is, do the Republicans that run, if he runs, did they learn the lesson of 2016, at least when it comes to a Republican primary? And that lesson is, if you want to be the big dog, you have to go after the big dog. And so rather than dancing around Trump for fear of angering his supporters and going after lesser competition in the hope of setting up some sort of binary choice, do you go after Trump the same way he will go after them? And some are indicating that they've got the message, but we still have to see how this unfolds. Yeah. And what would that look like? Would going after him directly work? Because he has the advantage, of course, having been the president with a bunch of accomplishments he can point to and a deep loyalty from a lot of people. I mean, I think it is always in politics easier said than done. I think threading the needle that you're talking about would be particularly challenging, maybe not impossible, but tough, at least at the moment. I wonder what you think of this, David, as you are selling your book in Trump's shadow and you're talking about the future broadly of the Republican Party. 2024 is sort of your lens, but we can even push it out further than that. It does not seem likely, and I think most conservatives, many people would say it would not be wise for the Republican Party, not advantageous, not smart, not the right thing to do, to basically say, okay, if Trump ends up not running, let's say, or once he moves on from the four and he's no longer super relevant as a personality in our politics, right? There's still the legacy and the supporters and all of that stuff. It would not be helpful to the Republican Party to try to just reset or reboot back to, let's say, the 2008 version or 2012 version of the party. Some things appear to be here to stay, right? There have been some realignments in our politics. What do you make of that? What are some of the big sea changes that would outlive Donald Trump, perhaps by quite some time? And that is a great question. And look, you know, everywhere I go, given what you and I do for a living, probably you get the same questions. What's next for the Republicans and what is going on with the Republicans? Uh, Sometimes those questions involve Trump. Sometimes they don't. And one of the biggest takeaways from all of the reporting and interviewing I did within Trump's shadow is that Donald Trump represents uh, an irrevocable break with the Reagan era of Republican politics. Right. So I'm a little bit older than you. And, you know, every year growing up from 1980 all the way through 2016, Every four years, there was either a Reagan on the ballot or there was some Republican telling me he was the second coming of Reagan. And in competitive, big competitive primaries, you'd have a bunch of candidates all arguing over who was the better representation of Ronald Reagan. And what you're what you're already seeing in the 2022 congressional primaries and what you're going to see in 2024. And I'd argue probably 2028 and possibly 2032 is Republicans arguing over who 
is the heir to Trump. Who is the next Trump? And it'll be different depending on the candidate, right? So some Republicans will run and promise voters the best of Trump without the worst of Trump, right? That agenda, the level of accomplishment that a lot of Republicans really revere, but without some of the uh, behavioral byproducts that rub independents, excuse me, and swing voters the wrong way. And and I'd also add, because one of those swing characteristics that was both an asset and a liability for Trump is the pugnaciousness, right, where that was a huge, huge appeal of Trump as a candidate to the Republican base, someone who finally will fight, fight hard, sometimes fight dirty as necessary. This is what a lot of Republicans have been frustrated with, with the party, feeling like the Democrats play for keeps the Republicans don't prior to Trump. And hilariously, the Democratic base believes exactly the opposite, that Democrats always cave. They don't fight dirty the way Republicans do. It's a weird thing where each base genuinely believes that the other side's team is more united, more disciplined, more ruthless. Uh, and and I think that's maybe a fascinating phenomenon worth uh, another book another day. But on that front, I think Republican voters in particular, but other voters may not be opposed to someone who can throw some hard punches and be a little bit rough, you know, rough around the edges and, you know, throw some elbows here or there. Maybe not just quite the way that Trump did it in certain circumstances, which was ultimately off-putting, well, frankly, to too many people because he ended up losing. Well, there are two ways. Well, correct. But there are two ways to look at it, right? You cannot you cannot contend with challenges in a general election if you don't win the nomination. And clearly to win the nomination. And when I was uh, reporting in Trump's shadow, I talked to Republican operatives from the establishment wing, the MAGA wing, and every wing in between. And what they were telling me without me prompting them, because I didn't really know that this was the answer I was going to get. You know, I kept asking, what are the big issues that a Republican has to be right on in a 2024 primary? And ultimately what they kept telling me is, well, you know, you can't be heterodox on some big issues like abortion or gun rights. But really what you have to do to win is tell Republican primary voters that you're a fighter and you have to do it in your own authentic way. One big Trump ally was telling me that he knows just because it makes perfect sense that this will happen, that some Republican candidates in 24, uh, particularly if Trump isn't in the race, will basically imitate Trump. They'll, they'll do their best you know, comedic impression of Trump. And voters don't like fake. They want somebody who's authentic. And so the challenge really is not just to prove you're a fighter, and that is a key metric here, but to do it in a way that voters convincingly is real. Correct. And, and you are right to point that out because that is something that I think we're going to see in a primary, and it's something that if you don't get right, you are not going to have as good a chance as your competitors. And then in a general election, if you do it right, you could end up with a coalition like Glenn Youngkin's, which people forget it wasn't just that the governor-elect of Virginia recovered lost ground for Republicans in the suburbs and with independents and swing voters. There was a huge turnout from the rural and ex-urban communities where the MAGA wing, the Trump wing of the party, is prevalent. Those two things together bring you a winning coalition. Republican professionals understand that. A lot of the Republicans that want to run that I've interviewed understand that. You know, the question is whether the party can rally around a standard bearer, Trump or otherwise, who can then try and run a campaign that gets that done. The Republicans are not the only party engaged in an interesting parlor game of will he, won't he, because the Democrats are increasingly discussing whether or not the sitting president, Joe Biden, 
will seek a second term. And I understand the political realities kind of require him to at least go through the motions and insist that he is planning to run for reelection because you don't want to be a, you know, a lame duck at this stage in your presidency by you know, announcing preemptively, oh, yeah, I'm done. I'm done after four years. And then there's a Democratic primary actively underway as opposed to sort of behind the scenes. But those I know you talk to a lot of political operatives and, and influential people in Washington, D.C. Those discussions are not really whispers anymore. People are just openly talking about Biden not running again. And I wonder what you think of that, especially in light of how unpopular he is right now. I mean, just setting aside the age questions and you know the, the personal uh, favorability issues that he's having and lack of confidence about his mental fitness for the job or his physical health. People are talking about that, but also just the unpopularity of his agenda. Uh, you know, the, the issue that people seem to have with him and his competence, right? I feel like those are building in a direction where I wouldn't necessarily put a lot of money on Biden calling it quits after one term, but I might start putting some money on that bet at this point, because I think it's getting more likely. What's your read on that? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. Look, I, I think that for somebody like Joe Biden, who coveted the White House for 50 years, to make the automatic assumption that he's not planning to run because of how old he is is, an in, is, is a faulty assumption. And we've covered presidents, and presidents tend to like being president and want to remain president, especially when they tried really hard to get the job. I think the challenge for Democrats is really a function of Joe Biden's age. And, and I mean it this way. I can look back at Democrats in our lifetime who got pummeled in midterm elections and came back and won re-election, uh, Bill sure. Clinton and Barack Obama being two of them. So approaching a midterm disaster sometimes is a, a great way for a Democratic president in recent history to uh, engage in a great course correction. And then they have a foil, and then all of a sudden they head into re-election in a much better position. The issue here is all about the president's age combined with all of the challenges surrounding uh, perceptions of his competency and fitness based on how old he is. I think the larger challenge for them is that Vice President Kamala Harris is not wearing well so far, not inside her party and not outside her party. And I think what we're seeing from her is a lot, are a lot of the political flaws that led her presidential bid in 2020 to be short-lived. So ironically, I think she was a great choice for Biden as vice president, because she checked boxes for the Democratic coalition, and he could pretty much count on her adopting his agenda as her own so that there would be no separation between the two of them. But some of the areas in which she needs to work on, what does she actually believe? Is she a strong leader? Especially when the prospect of the oldest sitting president in history not running for re-election, in part for that reason, as that speculation increases or sticks around, if they cannot turn to the vice president as a right. natural heir apparent, it then creates a lot of internal questions and infighting inside the party as they try well, and to also, who their leader really is. And also, David, to your point earlier about authenticity in a politician, that is, I would say, a deficiency for the vice president as well. That's my opinion, but I think it's pretty widely shared. Last question briefly, David Drucker. And I'm just going to put you on the spot and things can change. And we're 11 plus months out. But at this moment, based on everything that you are seeing, reading, polling, reporting, based on your experience in this business, if you had to put a percentage chance of the Republicans winning the House back next year and the Republicans winning the Senate back next year, what would those percentages be 
right now as of this moment? They're exceedingly high. I, I, I will cop out and not give you a number, but imagine an extremely high number. Look, historically, the party not in power in the White House wins a lot of seats in midterm elections. I think that if Biden's numbers were around 50 percent, Republicans would still be in position to win back control of the House and Senate. They're only down five seats in the House. They're down zero seats in the Senate. It's a 50-50 Senate. The Democrats control it because of the tiebreaker. Republicans have a lot of opportunities. What the president's poor numbers are doing is make it easier for Republicans to compensate in Senate races in the event that they don't end up with great candidates in all of these races. But I think that the House is poised to turn and probably and possibly turn big, at least if the election were today, and the same with the Senate. And I think Democrats know it. And I think that's why they're racing, at least in some quarters of the party, to get as much out of their thin majorities as they can, because they're assuming that they're not going to be able to do anything else for the foreseeable future. And it's, it's kind of a um, a catch-22, but if they really wanted to try and keep their majorities, they might try and approach an agenda from the perspective of how Joe Biden ran for president. Instead, yeah. they're treating this Well, they could have tried that won. from the beginning, right? They could have tried to actually, and this starts from the top, they could have tried to govern the way they won the presidency, but they did not do that. They have not done that, and the president now has an approval rating in the 30s. So there you have it. David Drocker, senior correspondent at the Washington Examiner. His new book is In Trump's Shadow. David, appreciate it. Hey, really appreciate it, Guy. Thank you. You bet. The Guy Benson Show will return after this break. Stay with us. Guy Benson will be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back. Here's a headline from the Associated Press. Portland among U.S. cities adding funds to police departments. We've been following this, right, in the wake of defund the police and all of the riots and all the activists and the left-wingers and a bunch of Democrats cowering and buckling their knees and finding ways to defund the police or reduce police budgets or redirect funding away. That's something that President Biden had endorsed. Beto O'Rourke endorsing this stuff down in Texas. A year and a half later, writes the AP, officials in Portland partially restored the funds that they cut. On Wednesday, the Portland City Council unanimously passed a fall budget bump that includes increasing the current $230 million police budget by an additional $5.2 million. It's because people aren't feeling safe because crime exploded in a lot of these places very predictably. Portland, Minneapolis, Seattle, elsewhere, New York City, and more pro-police officials are winning. Even in these blue cities with blue constituencies, defund the police is unbelievably toxic and dangerous. And therefore defund the police and the idiots who went along with it, they have now experienced a refund the police backlash because ultimately people want to live in safe communities and safe communities require the police. And to the extent that Democrats will continue to flirt with defund the police, their political opponents will be more than happy to take advantage because the American people, even very liberal people in America, want no part of that. And the results here... Even in cuckoo Portland, speak for themselves. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. (laughs) 
It's five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy hour time on this Thursday on the Guy Benson Show from Chicago, Illinois, today and tomorrow. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. GuyBensonShow.com. If you miss any of the program, you've got a free podcast every day. For example, if you missed Tucker Carlson yesterday, you might want to check it out. Many people have already on YouTube. It's also on the free podcast. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And the happy hour sponsored every day by the Finnish Long Drink, which is fantastic and available here in Illinois, among many other places across our great country. TheLongDrink.com is their website. It's all the rage in Finland, has been for decades, now all the rage here. TheLongDrink.com, always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. Thank you very much. As we begin our final hour of today's program, Let's welcome back Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post. She writes for FoxNews.com on occasion. You can follow her on Twitter if you're on that platform, at Carol with a K. Carol, welcome back to the show. Hi, Guy. Thanks for having me. How early of an adopter were you on Twitter where you could actually secure the handle of just your first name, at Carol? That's amazing. <laughs> I actually wasn't that early an adopter, but the person who had the handle wasn't using it. And at the time, like when I did join, Twitter was responsive to emails, which they're completely not anymore. Um, and I emailed somebody and said, you know, hi, this person is not using the handle. Can I have it? And they were like, yeah, take it. That's actually pretty incredible <laughs> that you actually were able to pull that off. Because in my mind, I'm imagining you being just one of the very first people ever to log on. I remember Hugh Hewitt told me about Twitter for the first time in 2008. And I've been on that hell site ever since 2008. I blame Hugh, uh, despite it being useful, to, you know, for my work and my job and other related things. It's it's a blessing and a curse, the Twitter. I, I, it, Twitter is yet another thing that I was uh, wrong in my predictions. And I always said, oh, this is never going to catch on. Like, who the hell wants to do this all day? <laughs> <laughs> Turns out uh, every yeah, journalist. Here, here we are. <laughs> That's right. Although it's interesting because we will get to some of this other stuff that we want to talk about here in a moment. But since we're on this little tangent, I have found Twitter to be extremely useful in that basically every journalist is on it and they say what they really want to say to impress their peers in ways that in the past they would only do, you know, in the newsroom or over email or text messages out of the public eye. Sometimes I feel like they forget that we can see them and to me, it's instructive because it has confirmed in a lot of ways every single thing and more that many conservatives have believed about the media for many years. Right. I mean, I feel like that that's one part of Twitter, uh, for better or for worse, that has pulled back the curtain. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. You know, when sometimes you see a journalist tweet something and it's like, are you serious? Like uh, yesterday, Sarah Young, uh, New York Times editorial board member, tweeted um, that. Uh, inflation only affects rich people, which is the exact opposite of who inflation really affects. But, you know, here we are. We're here. We get to learn about some of her amazing uh, economic opinions. 
Now, she seems to be someone who takes pride in being wrong. She's at least an opinion person, but it's even the down-the-line straight journalists who often will write things like they're just liberated, they feel like, on their Twitter feeds because they follow their friends and their friends follow them. And the issue is we can all see them, right? It's like we can see what you just wrote there. <laughs> you have to sort of remind them from time to time. Carol, let's talk about school closures because they're coming back. And it's related to COVID in some cases, but in other cases, they're just coming up with other excuses. So in the community in Kenosha, for example, right, in Wisconsin with the Rittenhouse trial, they are going to remote learning for at least a day or two because they're concerned about what might happen depending on a verdict, understandable to some extent, more understandable, I would say, than some of these COVID restrictions. But still, I mean, it seems like the bar is coming lower and lower for closing schools for various reasons. In the city of Detroit, they are moving to four-day weeks for the time being, where Fridays will just be stay-at-home, virtual learning, to try to slow the spread of COVID. I have no idea what the science is there. I don't think that there is any. I mean, we've been following COVID in schools and the data for so long, but this is what they've decided in a major American city. Let's have the kids in four days a week, and then on that fifth day, we're going to just stop showing up and maybe that will do something good for COVID or whatever. I wonder what you make of this. Yeah, and it's not just COVID. Um, CNN, there was a tweet today that more than 20 public school districts across the nation are extending their Thanksgiving breaks by several days to allow for mental health days for students and staff. Now, I, you know, I, I, I see this tweet and I see a lot of people getting rightfully angry at it. And I see a lot of anti-teacher you know, rhetoric, which really upsets me because the teachers are just as caught up in this uh, madness as the parents and the students. It's really the teachers' unions that are at fault here. Um, I had teachers last year when schools were closed in New York City who hated the remote option, who hated uh, that students are masked, um, who did not like any of the hybrid that happened last year, who very much wanted to be in the classroom and were forced by their unions not to be. So, um, I see this happening, and it's really it, the blame has to be placed with people like Randy Weingarten, who forced the CDC to rewrite policy last year and kept schools closed. So we're seeing a lot of repercussions of that, and it's like. Yeah, not and by a the way, I just, that, let's yeah. just pause there for a second because there's a lot that I want to just interact with because you're making several important points. Let's stop on Randy Weingarten for a second. She retweeted the CNN story that you were just referring to. More than 20 public school districts across the nation are extending Thanksgiving breaks by several days to allow for mental health days. And she retweets this and says, it has been a very tough year. And whether it's been a very tough year or not in the school year 2021, there have been many tough years in the history of our country and schools were still in session mental health breaks, if this is now going to be increasingly standard or at least acceptable, there's no limiting principle at all for that. Just like, oh, it's been a tough year. You can cite reasons, all sorts of reasons, why it's been a tough year every year. And I think for a lot of people, I, your point is well taken about teachers versus the unions. She is the bogeywoman, if you will, the bogeyman of the unions. She represents them. I think she represents them very well which I mean not in a complimentary way, but she is basically endorsing this. And I think for a lot of people, frustrated parents, students, and just observers in general who 
are deeply resentful of this harm being inflicted on kids in the name of science and now mental health, I think is it is now deep seated. And some of it is being directed at teachers because people say, well, hang on. How much time do you get off from work? Like paid time off. How many days do you get per year for a lot of American workers? It's 10 days, two weeks, sometimes three weeks. Teachers get the summer. Teachers get all these breaks. And I think it is really hard to sell to the American people, especially hardworking, essential workers who never got a break at all during the pandemic when things were really hard. Talk about a tough year. They had to show up and clock in, figure out what to do with their kids who weren't in school in many cases. And these teachers get all this time off and now they're closing down schools for extended breaks for mental health. I understand why people would not just be frustrated, but actually resentful and angry. Carol, I'll let you respond to that before we get to one other point. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I, I, you know, it makes me angry to imagine that schools will be closed. But here's here's the thing that I want to keep taking it back to last year, because what we're living with is the repercussions of what happened last year. So for one thing, when you make school a non-essential thing, moving forward, you kind of just close schools whenever you feel like it, because it's not like the grocery store, which was essential. It's not like Amazon delivery, which was essential. It was education and nobody didn't really didn't matter that much. And turns out that once you close schools, it gets really easy to keep closing them. But the second thing is that so many kids were messed up last year. I mean, you know, I I live in a a fairly wealthy part of New York. I live in Park Slope, uh, very left, um, just a a fairly rich area. And our school, um, which I I would say, you know, has parents and kids who got everything that they needed last year. This isn't like um, schools that are, you know, a lot of the the kids are really at risk. Anybody who needed a tutor last year got a tutor while the schools were closed, that kind of thing. They sent an email saying that they're seeing a real uptick in things like vandalism. It's a K through five school. These are little kids. Like they see, they're seeing things like somebody locking all the bathroom doors or like, you know, graffiti. I mean, like drawing on walls and stuff like that. And these are little kids. I cannot even imagine what's going on in middle and upper, upper schools where the kids did not get what they need last year. So do I think that the teachers are having an extremely hard time this year? Absolutely. They're absolutely having a, a particularly difficult year this year. And the blame for that that goes to their unions, which kept the schools closed last year and messed up these kids and returned them to school really damaged. The other point that I want to underscore, and you made it, and it's not exactly pertinent to the new bout of closures, I guess, in Detroit, but some of these other ones we've been talking about are mental health related, but it should never be forgotten. And I want you to repeat the reality, the fact, it should never be forgotten that last year, with the CDC trying to figure out what the guidance should be, the scientific guidance from the U.S. government on schools vis-a-vis the pandemic and this virus, the teachers' unions had their thumb on the scale. They were directly intervening to manipulate and alter the quote-unquote science for their own agenda-related purposes. That is not conjecture. That's not a conspiracy theory. That is a proven reality based on documents and emails We know that that happened, and yet we hear all the time from Democrats who are in bed with the teachers' unions and people like Randy Weingarten saying, well, no one tried harder to open the schools than us. No one wanted schools open more than we did. You know, Weingarten says this, and it's part of this wider phenomenon of gaslighting, a word that I use almost every show now, because it really does feel, and this is not only on the left, there's some of this on the right as well, but it really does feel like 
gaslighting and brazen lying in an attempt to rewrite history, even very recent history, is all around us. It just swirls constantly these days. And it's it's kind of alarming because if you try to keep your head and you just remember things, for example, from just a few months ago, there are a lot of people seemingly devoted all the time to try to convince you that you are crazy and those things didn't really happen the way that you remember them, Carol. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, um, I was tweeting about this today, and somebody who doesn't follow me obviously wrote, like, tweeted at me, um, you wanted schools open at the height of the pandemic, which, like, people still don't know that schools were safe the whole time, that countries all over the world opened schools, kept them open, did not treat them like uh, something inessential the way America did, a lot of places in America did. Um, and this is not news to them. It, I mean, this is not information that they know. It, it's really wild to me that we could still be having this conversation at the end of 2021. Oh, they, they don't, the thing is, they don't know anything. They don't know anything about that. They know nothing about, you know, what the Brits did right. with masking in schools in the EU. They have no idea that Florida schools were open for the entire year and everything went fine. They don't know those things, but they are absolutely convinced that they are the people who care about data, empiricism, science, and absolutely convinced that people like you would wish your own children dead by having them in school in this very dangerous situation that, in fact, is not dangerous, but they know better. Yeah, absolutely. And gaslighting is the perfect word for it because it feels like gaslighting. It feels like like you're trying to pretend that something is not what it cl- very clearly is. Carol Markowitz, last question. You mentioned that you're a New York City resident. I know you've flirted with becoming a Floridian, but for now, still in New York, there's a new mayor coming in, Eric Adams. I think that from my perspective, just uh, an unquestionably significant upgrade from Bill de Blasio. I mean, that that's a very low bar, obviously, but it's still a meaningful one. And in the early days post-election, what are your first impressions of Mayor-elect Adams? I'm I'm very optimistic. I think that he was the best option among the Democrats, and it's actually amazing that New York City picked him. I definitely thought they were going to pick another socialist. Um, so when they picked Eric Adams, it's it's a plus for sure. Um, I'm really worried about New York City really bouncing back, and so is he, which I appreciate because so many people are like, oh, New York is fine. It's not fine. I've been out a lot um, in Manhattan. It's not fine. It's so dead. Um, it's really different. And he recognizes that, and he wants to make changes. The thing is, I'm worried about him taking office and the rubber meeting the road where he realizes all the different influences inside the mayor's office that he's going to have to contend with. Um, I hope he's able to stand up to them. I, I can't wait to see how him and the teachers union clash. Uh, if they do, that would be terrific. But I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that uh, he's going to get pummeled, honestly. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, he already refused to back down and actually took a very aggressive yeah. posture in response to Black Lives Matter. That's from uh, one of those leaders in New York City. So that was an early indication that was uh, pretty positive in my book. We will see. Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post. Her writings appear elsewhere, including foxnews.com. She is, because she claimed it, at Carol on Twitter. We appreciate it, Carol. Thank you, Guy. Thanks for having me. Happy Hour continues next. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm not in schools. I have no interaction with children whatsoever. Um, But I do understand this issue because I read accounts from parents, from educators, from people. And this is all over the country. Back on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, that's Bill Maher. He was on CNN last night with Chris Cuomo for the full hour, which was interesting. Maybe made that show watchable for a night. 
And he's talking about critical race theory, saying he understands the issue because he reads about it from parents and educators and people all over the country. And he is not one of these people on the left saying, oh, it's all a lie. We know it's not a lie. We know it's not some fable or dreamed up by conservatives. That is an aggressive attempt to deflect and to confuse people based on technicalities and really outright falsehoods. And Marr actually explains some of this in Cut 27. Kids are taught and sometimes separated into groups, oppressor and oppressed. Again, does a kid even know what those words mean? Would they gravitate toward that if you hadn't told them? You can acknowledge that we have made great progress on all the social issues. Uh, and, and yet there is still more work to be done. We're not saying mission accomplished. It's just saying let's live in the year we're living in. You can't come up with good solutions unless you're realistic about what the problem is. You know, I wonder how many CNN viewers were learning things last night for the first time because they've had a whole host of people on that network insisting that Glenn Youngkin was just lying about CRT and none of this stuff is real. And here's Bill Maher explaining, oh, no, it's real. This is how it's done. This is why people object to it. He also addressed how his politics, Mars, have not changed. And yet, he is now attracting more interest across the partisan divide because the left is going so far crazy in a lot of cases. Cut 28. They come after me every week for something. I mean, both sides. My politics have not changed. I'm an old school liberal. It's, I mean, we were talking about the race issue. They changed, not me. I am for the first time when I'm on the road now playing to very often a politically mixed audience. I think there's a, a, a lot of old school liberals like me who don't like what's going on on the far of the left. I think he's right about that. And some independents who aren't happy about it either are voting Republican. And that's why we're seeing some results that we're seeing and some of the polling that we're seeing around the country. The happy hour on The Guy Benson Show continues after this break. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back on The Guy Benson Show, it is the happy hour, Friday Eve here on the program. And to kick off today's show, we welcome back Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the U.S. Senate. A lot to talk about with him, of course about the Biden agenda, prospects for 2022, and much more. Here's part of my conversation with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. I want to start with this because I can hardly and scarcely believe that it's real, and yet it is real. We are seeing the House Democrats at least planning to try to get a vote in the next, let's say, 24, 48 hours on the president's so-called Build Back Better bill. Uh, This uh, human infrastructure, whatever they're going to call it, reconciliation, partisan, multi-trillion dollar spending spree. And based on what we are seeing from nonpartisan scorekeepers and analysts, this bill would raise taxes on millions of middle class families while giving tax breaks to most millionaires, overwhelmingly in blue states in the United States. So tax hikes for the middle class tax breaks for rich blue state taxpayers. And what's emerging today is the single biggest line item, the biggest expenditure in this bill, if you will, are those SALT deductions, those tax breaks for the rich. 
over the first five years of the bill. I know what the Democrats say, Senator, all the time about what they would do on taxes. This seems to be exactly the opposite of it. And I feel like that's gotten pretty scant attention so far. Am I missing something here? Well, uh, it hasn't got any lack of attention on our side. I mean, what, you know, what, what's happening here, guys? The Speaker is marching uh, the House Democratic Conference, at least those that put them in the majority in swing states right off a cliff, marching them right off a cliff, pursuing this ideological transformation of America into Bernie Sanders' vision of what the country ought to be. And, you know, we already had a reaction from the public about how they feel about what these guys have been doing. We saw it in Virginia, even more importantly in New Jersey, where not even competitive races uh, had enormous Republican support. It was a protest vote against inflation and what the Democrats have been doing already all year. And yet what we're seeing from some people is a downplaying of inflation, trying to explain, actually, it's not really so bad. And what we need to do to combat inflation and make everything feel better is to spend trillions of new dollars and new spending. It's just sort of amazing. Every time there's a new problem that crops up under this administration, whether it's directly their fault, indirectly their fault or some combination their giant spending bill magically is the solution for that problem as well. I'm waiting for them to say that the border crisis will be solved by Build Back Better. I mean, they're, they're basically making that argument on all of the you know, economic maladies right now that this is some silver bullet that they've got cooking. The American people don't seem terribly excited about it, but it feels like, at least on the House side, that's what they're going to try to do. Again, I'm not sure if they're going to have the votes. That's still up in the air. What do you think about your side? Let's say they do get this passed or something close to it passed. Then it comes over to the Senate side, and there are at least two of your colleagues on the other side of the aisle who have been not just tapping but in some cases slamming the brakes on this process. Do you feel like whatever the House passes would be dead on arrival in the Senate? Absolutely. But imagine, and Senator Bo said, what the House does is irrelevant, which makes what the Speaker's doing to our own members even more outrageous. She's literally walking them off a cliff to support a bill that will never become law. And even if this reckless tax and spending spree ultimately in some form or another uh, clears uh, the Senate, even liberal economists who actually prefer from a policy point of view what the Democrats are trying to accomplish here are admitting, Guy, that it will exacerbate the inflation problem both this year and next year. That full interview with cocaine Mitch McConnell available for free at GuyBensonShow.com, also part of the free podcast. Every day, on demand, no charge, GuyBensonShow.com. FoxNewsPodcasts.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts, we are there. The one-stop shop, of course, GuyBensonShow.com. When we come back the home stretch, all the Patriot Awards were last night. We were in the house doing our show and then watching the big show at 8 p.m. Eastern last night. Really incredible event. We will talk about it and tell you how to catch it if you missed it. You missed a lot. That's next on The Home Stretch. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. 
home stretch on the Guy Benson Show, broadcasting today and tomorrow from the city of Chicago in the Fox News Bureau here. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. If you miss any of it, you can go straight to that website, download major interviews, or just get the podcast every day. You can subscribe, leave a little review if you'd like. GuyBensonShow.com. Last night, we were at the Patriot Awards. From right around 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time, Hollywood, Florida. We were doing our show down from Florida the last couple days leading up to it. Really cool group of guests that we were able to talk to face to face. And then we were seated at one of the tables down sort of on the main floor near the stage. And I thought they really did a very nice job putting this thing together. It's an award show where genuine heroes are honored as opposed to famous celebrities. And look, there's a place for those other award shows. I'm not that interested in them. I don't really watch them very much. But people appreciate art and entertainment and pop culture and fine. Even though it appears based on ratings, interest has waned a bit in recent years. There's a market for that. Fine. But someone needed to do something like this. And Fox Nation has now done it for three straight years. My first time actually being in the room And there were some truly remarkable people who were honored. And there were portions of the program that were really quite moving with people who have overcome just incredible adversity, driven by love of family, love of country, faith. I mean, it it was pretty special. And if you missed it on Fox Nation last night, I'll remind you that this coming Sunday night on Fox News Channel, there's an encore presentation, 10 p.m. Eastern, on the mothership, Fox News, Sunday night. And if you missed it, didn't get a chance to watch all of it or any of it, I would encourage you to tune in or maybe set your DVR because you will learn about some people who are spectacular and even in a period of time that has been very tumultuous and extremely divisive and very polarized, there are some people in this country, a lot of them, who are fundamentally good, who make us all proud to be fellow Americans with them. And I don't want to give too many spoilers. I mean, you can go and look up who won these awards, but taking it all in, moment by moment, recipient after recipient. With that big crowd, three to 4,000 people. It was pretty cool. Here's one clip that I want to play for you. It's from David Beamer. He is the father of Todd Beamer of United Flight 93, 9-11. Let's roll. Todd Beamer, truly a hero. And... He was given a posthumous Patriot Award at those awards last night on Fox Nation. And his parents were in the building to represent him and to accept that award on their late son's behalf. And David had a number of things to say, his father. He really had clearly thought a lot about what he wanted to say. And here is part of what he said to the audience with a message for the country and a message for those who signed up to serve after 9-11, cut four. We are thankful 
that the Fox Nation remembers 9-11, remembers our son, and what others did on that day, and what thousands of others have done the day after 9-11, the weeks, the months, the years, the decades after 9-11, to keep us free and safe. so happy to see those honored this night for their sacrifice and what they've done. We remember them, and we celebrate successes tonight. Producer Christine, you were there with us sitting down at the table, and I mean, it was really for much of the program in the evening riveting. There were some incredible people, some of whom folks at home would have heard of, Others they would never have heard of until watching their stories. And each winner had a little video montage, a vignette that played up on the huge screens as an introduction to why this person was getting this award and this honor. And every single one of those stories was impressive, was laudable, and to be in the same room as some of these incredible Americans really was pretty special. It really was such a special night. Um, I got to sit with you for a little bit and, you know, be right up there. And like you said, watching the vignettes, the videos that they did leading up to giving the awards to these heroes, was <laughs> Fox Nation just did such a beautiful job of explaining and showing why these people deserved the award. I think I I definitely cried almost through every single video because they were just so moving. And it was really an honor to be in a room with all of them. And then we got to meet a couple of them afterwards, which was uh, quite fun for me. And uh, hopefully I'll be booking some of these people for the show in the very near future. Well, yeah, because we went for a late dinner after the show was over with a few other folks, had a really nice time. It was just one of these kind of like a diner inside the uh, the hotel that we were staying at. And one of the recipients, who truly is just incredible, this man uh, was serving in the U.S. military in the war on terrorism. He was gravely wounded, his leg and his arm. And not only did he survive and battle back to resume his life, he signed up to go back over there for another tour of duty after going through that whole rehab and you have to see his story and you can, if you watch the replay of the Patriot awards on Fox news channel, Sunday night, 10 PM Eastern, but he and his family walked in and they took a booth kind of right near us. And we clapped when they walked in. And when we finished up dinner, it was late. It was well after midnight at that point. And you went over to go try to book him uh, because producer Christine is always producing and I was concerned because at one point, you know, you were standing there. Then we couldn't see you. Did she sit down? Did she order a drink? Like, we thought that you were going to become besties with these folks, and we weren't going to see you till 2 in the morning or something like that. Uh, but you did leave them in peace after, I guess, getting some contact information. But that's part of your job. And the stories that we learned about and we saw last night are stories that I really think more Americans need to know about. And there were... People involved in the military, there was law enforcement, 
There were some kids who did some remarkable things. There was an Olympian who, when she won her gold medal, and again, I don't want to say too much because I want people to watch this, honestly. When she won her gold medal in the Olympics in Tokyo, just her joy and pride in the country was infectious. It was amazing. It went viral. And she was there last night. She showed up and she got very emotional talking about her father, an immigrant, and and what she's been able to accomplish and, and her love for the country. And already, I mean, there were people at the table crying just from the Olympian. I'm like, okay, it's going to be waterworks throughout the evening here, I suspect. And for some, including you, it sounds like that was true. And I, I will confess that uh, from time to time, it was hard not to get a little misty-eyed, not just out of national pride, but also just a gratitude. Gratitude and a sense of awe, frankly, at people who do things that are so heroic and so unfathomable, I think, for so many of us who just live relatively comfortable lives, which would not be possible without them. And to be able to go to a big sort of glamorous event with lots of people and a red carpet and the bright lights and to have those people get the standing ovations and talking about sacrifice and almost always deflecting credit to other people or sharing credit with others as opposed to self-indulgent preening speeches about themselves, which we sometimes get at other shows. Uh, it's, it's just a great concept executed very well. And I suspect this will be a tradition that might last quite a long time because once you experience it, I think you're like, okay, I'm really eager to see who's going to get a Patriot Award next year because they do a lot of preparation. I mean, this was months and months and months in planning, obviously, and they carried it off. And again, if you missed it, you can watch it Sunday night, this coming Sunday, Fox News Channel, 10 p.m. Eastern. Christine, any other last thoughts or impressions? Because it was your first Patriot Awards as well. It was, I just have to say, the entire experience from start to finish was just so amazing. Um, guys, I just have to, I, I know you and I tease each other a lot, and uh, we uh, bicker a lot, but we're Well, not for, not for real. Sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I, we, we don't bicker that much, to be clear. We're bickering about bickering, but we don't really bicker. Right. But please, go on. I have to say, just watching you do these shows um, from this event and how you handle yourself with the, the people that come up to you, because it was so awesome to watch such fans of your, I mean, fans of everybody, fans of Fox, but fans of yours come up to you and you are so generous with your time to all of them. And just the way you handled the radio show. I mean, I was a crazy person running around and, I mean, we made it all work, and it was some of the best radio I think we've done, and it was such an honor to interview some of these people, like Joey Jones. I mean, Tucker Carlson we had on the show, which was unbelievable. Yeah, it was um, a it was whirlwind. A fantastic week. It, really it was, was a whirlwind, it was and uh, it was great to have the opportunity to broadcast from that location and then attend the awards. And, of course, you know, people coming up and saying hi, whether it's in a context like this or just out and about. I've told some of those stories. It never bothers me because without an audience, we don't have a job. Sean Hannity made that point on stage last night. We all get fired, right? All of us get fired. If people aren't watching, people aren't listening, we need an audience. That's the way this business works, and it is an honor to meet the people 
who make all of it possible, namely you, the audience. And we're just extremely, speaking of gratitude, we are very grateful. And there's just that cool reminder when you're in, in a place filled with thousands of hardcore Fox fans. It's it's energizing to me. It's it's not a chore at all, quite the opposite. So if, if you're listening and you met any of us in Florida this week, uh, thanks for coming. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. That applies to everyone else who didn't make it to these awards, but who feels the same way. Thank you. Back here tomorrow, Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show from Chicago. Should be another big one. Hope you'll tune in. In the meantime, enjoy your Thursday night. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.